Today's podcast is sponsored by the new Zondervan Comfort Print NASB 95 Bible. Keep listening to learn about the new exegetical preaching blog. Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Well, you are listening to The Mortification of Spin. I am Todd Pruitt, and I'm joined, as always, by Amy Bird and Carl Truman. And uh, we're so glad that you joined us uh, today. Uh, Of course, we are three people who keep our fingers on the pulse of American Christianity. And so we were a little uh, interested at uh, just the latest depressing study released uh, from the Barna research group. Now, you can have quibbles with the Barna uh, research uh, at various times. Um, their definition of, of, of what a Christian is is quite uh, broad, uh, shall we say. Um, but uh, this survey was interesting because uh, it seems to, to have as a starting point a, a relatively decent definition of a, a quote, a Bible-believing Christian, someone who affirms, you know, uh, you know the, the Trinity, just as a baseline of a very basic, the Bible's God's Word, the Trinity, Jesus died for sinners, etc. Um, and what they have found in, in their research is that a slim 51% majority of Americans believe in the most basic uh, biblical attributes of God, down from 73%, they say, uh, three decades ago. So uh, we are increasingly, it seems, as, uh, as the columnist uh, Ross uh, Duthat has, has written in, in a recent book, we are increasingly a, a nation of heretics. And of course, uh, the Church of Jesus Christ as uh, the ground and pillar of the truth we we have uh, a, a rather large uh, responsibility in this. Uh, l- let me just throw out a couple of, of things from this study. So, for instance, Americans are more confident, this was interesting, Americans are more confident about the existence of 6% contending that Satan is an influential spiritual being, yet almost half, 49%, are not fully confident that God truly uh, exists. Or 44% of Americans who believe that uh, Jesus Christ sinned uh, while on earth. Or 52% uh, that have a sub-biblical view of the Holy Spirit, that he is not a person of the Godhead, but merely a a force or a presence or a power. So, Carl and Amy, uh, what what are we to make of, of a survey like this? What does it tell us, if anything helpful at all? And then eventually, of course, before we close out today, uh, some thoughts on what Christians, the church specifically, what can the church do to keep our own house in order, to guard uh, the hearts and the minds of our people and feed them well so that they think rightly about God? Let me do this. Let me ask you both a question. We'll do it this way. 
first of all, why is it a problem to believe wrong things about God? Let's start there because some will no doubt say, well, you're just getting into matters of doctrine. There are more important things. Well, why is it a problem, first of all, to believe wrong things about God? What do you think? It was not a survey of confessing Christians. It was a, sur- a broad survey of people in general, right? So, yes. So, what, what they've called this is the American Worldview Inventory 2020. Okay. And they've, and they've, they've conducted these surveys in years past mm-hmm. um, of, of, quote, an American worldview inventory. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's a more broad than yeah. just confessing mm-hmm. Christians. Mm-hmm. But it would not take us long to find not just anecdotal evidence, but similar surveys. Oh, there's, that yeah, zero I've, in. I've yeah. written mm-hmm. on them um, yeah. where it's, it's just as sad to see right, right. Uh, same results. Yeah. So, why is, so, so what's the problem? Why is it wrong um, or, or why is it problematic to believe wrong things about yeah, God. like the question I was thinking. Oh, no, no, no. You have to ask her, answer my question. But it's the same question. <laughs> Why should we strive to know God? Okay. I mean, I don't think that that's an important question that's out there right now. I don't, it, it, it seems to be everyone's faith is kind of privatized. And knowing God, you would say, I'm assuming, that part of knowing God is actually believing the truth about God. Well, and that there is a true God. Uh-huh. There's so, a true God. Mm-hmm. So, first of all, obviously, we're going to say it's wrong to believe wrong things about God. But what is wrong about it? What's the problem with believing wrong things about God? More than wrong, it's just utterly sad. Okay. So, why is it wrong? What's the problem with believing wrong things about God? Well, I mean, I like one thing that Michael Horton says is that, you know, you hear a lot of evangelicals say that, you know, what's really important is that you have a relationship with God. Mm-hmm. But the, the fact is that everyone has a relationship with God. Mm-hmm. It just might not be a saving, loving relationship right, right. with God. And if you're not in that, then you're, you're under his wrath mm-hmm. as his created being who is completely ungrateful for that and an offense to him in your, in your sin and in your unbelief. Mm-hmm. I think as well, I mean, you come in, I come in, you come in from two, two angles. You say if you're dealing with a Christian who takes the Bible seriously, but's wondering why it's important to have, for want of a better term, precise knowledge of God, then I think you point them back to the Bible and say the whole tenor of the story of the Bible from the Old Testament uh, onwards is that precise knowledge of God is rather important to a healthy relationship with God. That's mm-hmm. one of the reasons why, for example, there's a prohibition on images because you don't want images misleading you, giving you the impression that God is a creature within the creaturely realm. You've got to maintain God's transcendence. Uh, It's one of the reasons why there is uh, a prohibition against false worship, not just worship of false gods, but false worship of the true God, because uh, the relationship we have with God is to be a rather precisely articulated one. Of course, that culminates in, in the Lord Jesus Christ. If I was talking to somebody who wasn't a Christian, uh, who wanted to know why as a, as a Christian we get so uh, het up about precise knowledge of God, I think I would use an analogy with, well, probably you could do it with, with any reasonably intimate human uh, relationship, but you know, man and wife uh, is is a useful one uh, on the grounds that 
it's rather important to have precise knowledge of your uh, spouse so that you know you don't wander up to the wrong woman in the supermarket and plant a kiss on her lips mm-hmm. or something like that that we we take it for granted in human relationships right. that a, a a fair degree of precision is important mm-hmm. we need to know who are, you know it's not just any old child will do okay as my son i need to know right my my son precisely to know my obligations towards him mm-hmm. i need to know who my wife is precisely so that i can behave appropriately towards her and just as importantly appropriately towards other women right. so i i think that the the whole idea of relationship that amy's pointed to that mike horton draws out whether you think of that biblically or whether you think of it in in common sense terms points us towards yeah, we really need to know what we mean by the word God when we when we articulate yeah. it in order for it to have any meaningfulness relative to our... Yeah, and it would be ridiculous if we were talking about our regular people in our lives and, and to say it doesn't matter, right. like you're saying. Yeah, it, because, and, 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 and just teasing that illustration out a little bit, because if, if we proceed in our relationships not knowing who from who really, we'll end up doing the wrong thing. We'll end up dishonoring the person or dishonoring ourselves or both or, 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 or engaging in actions that on, on their own merits are wrong. And so in the same way, uh, believing the wrong things about God is, is impious. It leads to sin. In fact, it is sin to believe the wrong things about God. How easily we are offended when someone believes the wrong things about us. And yet, too many people expect that it's okay if, if for instance, you, you, you have a non-Trinitarian view of God. So long as your heart is in the right place or so long as you love God, what's the big deal if you conceive of God as non-Trinitarian? Well, the big deal is that that's not God anymore. You're worshiping an idol and it's impious. It's ungodly. Well, you know, I, would, I would take us back to, to, to summer 2016 and the Trinity debate. Part of what drove us, in fact, the heart of what drove us in that debate was that it's sinful to reconceive of God in ways that are different than how he has revealed himself in the scriptures, that that's wrong, that it's impious, actually, to do that. Well, and you you don't want others to be lost. (laughs) Exactly. We want them to know the true God, because Mm -hmm. that is... You don't even know yourself mm-hmm. until you know God. Right. Um, that's how think, we even can know who we are. I think it's worth, it's worth putting in a sort of a, an important pastoral caveat at this point. Of course, obviously what we're not saying is, you know, yes. you're converted on Sunday and by Wednesday you've got a thorough grasp right. of the Trinitarian God or you're engaging in idolatry. Right. Uh, we have a gracious God who bears with us in our, uh, our sins and our mistakes and our failings. Mm-hmm. But I, I think what we're talking about here is really what, the testing of the church as a whole should be yes. and what the aspirations of the individual Christian mm-hmm. should be. That, mm-hmm. that the point is not that you have a perfect knowledge of, the, of God on day one of your Christian pilgrimage, mm-hmm. but that you have that desire. You have a desire in your heart not to think incorrect thoughts about God mm-hmm. and to learn more, and that drives you. It's, it's faith-seeking understanding, mm-hmm. As, mm-hmm. Uh, as Anselm would, would have put it. You know, yeah. It's our faith driving us to discover more and more about God, not God as we invent him in our minds, but God as we find him revealed to us in the scriptures, supremely, right. of course, in the incarnation of his son, the Lord right. Jesus. When it's truly delightful. I mean, mm-hmm. one line that I go back to a lot is uh, Amy Brown Hughes in 
the chapter she wrote in, I think it's called Trinity Without Tears. It might be Trinity Without Hierarchy. I might have changed the title. But she says, we are beholders of the beholders beholding of us. Hang on a second. I need to work through that. We are. We, can you repeat? We are beholders. We are beholders, yeah. Of the beholders, capital B. Okay. Beholding of us. Like to behold God and his love of us. That's amazing. I'm still confused, but I think you're right. <laughs> yeah, that. It sounds great. I mean, we get to behold the one who beholds us. It's like when we, the more we learn about God, the more we delight in, in who he is. But not only that, which is amazing and wonderful, but in the union of the love that he has for us that we get to participate in. It's truly yeah, and I, delightful and amazing. Yeah, and I think you know Calvin makes a a, um, a kind of draws a direct line between the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves um, that we cannot really know who we are and, and have a and have a proper knowledge of who we are and why we're here apart from a proper knowledge of God. I think that's certainly true. And 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 again, you know, on, Carl, on your pastoral point, you know, one of the, if if we look at for instance, the Apostles' Creed is kind of a baseline of fundamental, essential, biblical truths. Again, if somebody's being converted out of an unbelieving home, for instance, and they have no background in this whatsoever, we wouldn't demand that they suddenly have a comprehensive knowledge of each of the doctrinal points of the, of, of the Apostles' Creed. But we would expect that having been taught and having learned those things, that person then would see that they are biblical, would embrace them. What we're talking about here is someone who, for instance, has knowledge of the Trinity, has been taught the Trinity, but, but, but then deliberately rejects that knowledge. That's deeply problematic. Mm-hmm. And in uh, that survey, we don't know what percentage that is. I mean, that's just a broad survey of people with all kinds of beliefs. Right. And that's something I think we need to examine as a church is what is our witness? How evangelical are we? Someone said something to me that really, you know, had me kind of thinking and, and, and sad, just that growing up in the Reformed church and now being in a non-denominational church, she hasn't rejected Reformed theology, but she's learned that, oh, everything she's been told about people outside of the Reformed faith isn't necessarily true, that there's a mm-hmm. lot of love for God there. There's a lot of seeking to know him well there. And this is the part that got me is that she's seeing way more conversions, adult conversions. Mm-hmm. Yep. I mean, you know, there's different things we can say about that, um, but it's something to think about. How about this um, from, the, uh, from the same survey? And this has something to do with um, age groups, et cetera, but uh, they write among the least likely to possess an orthodox biblical view of God are political liberals, 35%, which may be, I don't know, that may be more of an American phenomenon than it is a Western European phenomenon. I don't know. Although it makes a little bit of of sense just simply by public policy, um, it, it would be hard to be a political liberal and reject a lot of the kind of cornerstones of political liberal policy, like you know, sexuality and gender and abortion and that kind of thing. But nevertheless, um, that, that's not a surprising figure, certainly here in the United States. Obviously, adults who identify as, quote, LGBTQ and adults 18 to 29 
years old are among some of the most likely to reject an orthodox biblical view of god so adults 18 to 29 uh, years old um i think that's one of the you know the survey to me strikes me as who knows what questions they're asking there are all kinds of questions about how accurate is this but as an impressionistic Mm. survey the one thing that comes through loud and clear is it confirms other surveys and reports that indicate that people under 35 there is a dramatic cliff edge of Mm. of unbelief that we are seeing and that has implications not only for the church but i think for wider social and cultural issues such as freedom of religion Mm -hmm. freedom of religion will will only survive as long as people regard religion as a, a virtue that that improves the public square. Right. Uh, it does seem to me that we have uh, an interesting generational shift taking place mm-hmm. that will destabilize or challenge an awful lot of traditional political and social orthodoxies in the West at this point. You know, it's, it's interesting as I, as I think about the church and, and what the, the responsibilities, particularly of pastors and elders are, and I don't know why I do this. I think it's because I'm, I'm, I'm into punishing myself, but I, I I've, will periodically watch clips from sermons from uh, independent fundamentalist Baptists. Now, again, what's interesting here is you have a category of preachers and churches that on paper have a very high view of the Bible, very high view of believing and preaching the Bible. And and yet what you'll find in a lot of these independent fundamentalist Baptist churches is that the Bible is actually very rarely actually preached. Mm -hmm. That, that, That what is preached is women shouldn't wear pants and what is preached is, you know, who you should uh, vote for and um, how long your hair should be. And you get a lot of that from those pulpits and actually very little Bible. It's just a, it's just a right-wing social gospel. Right. Essentially, or, or a traditional, yep. traditionalist social right. gospel. That's exactly what it is. And then another thought I had in, in, conjun- in conjunction with this is that during our, our present crisis with, um, with the COVID virus, uh, one pastor down in Louisiana made a lot of headlines because uh, he, he pastors a rather large Pentecostal church of around a thousand attendees. And, and they were kind of continuing to meet because God's going to protect them from the virus, you know, typical kind of Pentecostal uh, stuff. And, um, you know, you go onto their website and you find that they, you know, reject the doctrine of the Trinity, for instance. Um, and you have a lot of folks in, in these categories of churches. So people who would attend church every Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday evening, and any time else. And they're being taught in a quote unquote Christian church, things that are wrong about, about God. So, so there would be little wonder why professing born again, Christians get some of the most fundamental truths about God wrong because those men and women in that church would say we are born again, Christians, but they would deny what we believe is essential Christian doctrine. Do we not have an analog that though in the in the reform world in some ways with a I think a correct emphasis on expository preaching working mm. consistently through books of the Bible which I did myself when I was a pastor yeah. uh, but the the danger with that is you can end up with an an overwhelming emphasis upon the narrative or or the economy of salvation yeah. and you never actually press back into the the eternal ontology of god to use a sort of pompous terminology we end up you know and you can see this in our prayers well quite often our prayers we we thank god for what he has done 
We don't worship God for who he is. Uh, And I wonder if, if you did a survey like this in our own ranks, you wouldn't come up with some of the catastrophic figures, I hope, about, you know, not sure that God exists, that kind of thing, or some people are more confident that Satan exists and God exists. Mm -hmm. Very interesting finding socially and culturally. But I wonder if, if actually, we'd actually find that, that in a lot of our circles, some of the basic truths of the faith, you know, can Jesus sin, for example, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Uh, people may be ignorant of that simply because they've never actually been forced or, or made to think about it and why it's important because we tend yeah. to, as I say, rightly, you know, the lion's share of the preaching in our pulpits is expository preaching. Mm-hmm. It's, it's often narrative preaching. Uh, even in the even when you come to the epistles of Paul, they're often narrative preaching on the epistles of Paul. Yeah. Uh, where do we yeah. go in the Reformed Church to yeah. get this kind of stuff? Is it just Sunday school, or is there a place actually for thematic, systematic preaching? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, and and I think that's a really good point because we can go to um, we can find churches that uh, we would have a lot of affinity with but whose commitment to verse by verse, book by book of the Bible preaching can, if, if the pastor's not careful, can end up uh, leading to a diet that is very truncated for people and, and actually does not explore whole areas of doctrine, which other parts of the Bible does. And I think that's why pastors, preachers need, need to be not only capable exegetes, but capable at systematic theology as well. And, and you can do that well when you're preaching book by book, um, but it, it takes some discipline and it takes some time. And like, for instance, um, I'm preaching through Genesis right now. Um, I preached either three or four sermons on the first verse. In the beginning, God created heaven. Because I wanted to take time to talk about this God who is introducing himself to us here. And so we got into, in, in the first few sermons in Genesis, we got into doctrines about you know, for instance, connected to God's immutability and his eternality, et cetera, the pro-Nicene doctrines that were very, very precious um, to, uh, to the early church theologians. So you can do that, but it, it takes a real deliberate effort. Isn't that, I mean, and I think this questions, you know, what our view of discipleship is, because, you know, in the Reformed faith, we believe it's, it starts with the means of grace, right? right? So then as a pastor, you're going to be thinking discipleship and doctrinally right. when you're going through books of the Bible, mm-hmm. even like you're just explaining there, Todd. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and even as, as you're serving the Lord's Supper, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and conducting a baptism. Right. And then how does that then overflow into the, you know, how does that ministry overflow into the, the mm-hmm. rest of the teaching in the church? Yeah. Um, yeah. Because yeah. so often I think our view of discipleship now has been divorced from the church right. and we're looking at, okay, this is the parachurch takes over here Domain, yeah. and then you got all kinds of runaway. Yeah, doctrine. I think you're absolutely right. And we've said this before and it bears repeating that discipleship was always something apart from Sunday mornings. It, it's, it, it happens in a one-on-one thing. And, and certainly yeah. that's an avenue for and an arena for disciple making, mm-hmm. but, but disciple making begins the heart of it is the church together under the authority of, of God's word as it's proclaimed. And, and so I, I just, I hope that preachers when, when they are preparing their sermons are thinking uh, about um, uh, doxology and devotion. How, how is this passage of scripture making me a more faithful worshiper and a more faithful follower of Christ? 
uh, both of those things. There's going to be theological and ethical dimensions uh, to each to each sermon as a result of that. But but yeah, Carl, I, I think your point on just because I'm preaching through books of the Bible, that means I'm giving my people a good diet. Not necessarily. Yeah. Not necessarily. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If that model and the way that I'm preaching in that model is 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 neglecting entire categories of of important biblical doctrine. Yeah. I mean, it's why the continental reform tradition had the preaching of the Heidelberg Catechism over 52 mm-hmm. Lord's Days uh, on a, an annual basis. That yeah. created its own problems, not least uh, lazy pastors who sure. repeated their catechetical sermons year after right. year, much right. to the chagrin of their congregants. Mm-hmm. It was an attempt to address the issue of synthetic doctrine. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, and and I, I always encourage, I mean, our, our pattern at, at the church I serve in is we, quote, typically preach through books of the Bible, but then we will add in topical series. So, you know, I've, I've preached through the Apostles' Creed. And some people, because they've been so inundated in the, it has to be book by book or else it's not faithful preaching, you know, we remind them, even in that series, I'm preaching through specific texts of Scripture with, I hope, you know, faithful exegesis, but I'm using the Apostles' Creed as a categorical guide through that. And, and, and that kind of thing helps us to see, to make sure that as we're looking at the trees, we're not missing the forest. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I would strongly encourage pastors to have that mix in their preaching. One other thing I just wanted to say before we close, in regards to the younger generation being so off in their knowledge of who God is, does that reveal more about the younger people or does it revo- reveal more about the generation before them that taught them? Yeah. 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 That's a, that's a good question. And, yeah. and you think, I mean, Amy, you and I, um, Carl probably hasn't, but I mean, you know, uh, we, we've been in kind of the, the large, broadly evangelical, but conservative, you know, mm-hmm. church. I, um, and that seeker sensitive model was created by those kids' parents, mm-hmm. you know, by the people who are in their 50s and 60s and 70s now. That, that, that model of big church, vague preaching, what was created by their parents. Although, you know, one of the unknowns here is we, we don't know how much people who even went to church in the past believed. You know, it's, That's right. what I mean, we, like, too. Yeah, how we, much we like, of their we, faith was authentic? You know, if you go back to the 19th century, yeah, there were big crowds at Spurgeon's Chapel in London, but how many of them yeah. really believed what he was saying and how many were going there because he was a huge public figure and it was kind of cool right. to, mm-hmm. to go and hear a great speaker right. speak with passion on a religious mm-hmm. subject. So, you know, there, there's always, you read pastor's letters from two, 300 years ago, they're complaining about the same stuff. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. Definitely. We might say that, you know, perhaps today we just have less formal outward religion than they mm-hmm, used to mm-hmm. have you know, <laughs> which uh, it, it may mean that what we see now is a bit more genuine than what we used to see in the past mm-hmm. but uh, anyway well thanks very much for joining us on mortification of spin today i uh, hope you've uh, enjoy the conversation please go over to our website mortificationofspin.org where there's an opportunity for you uh, to make a donation to support the podcast if you wish and also to win a copy of a book that we've 
done as a giveaway before, but is so good and, and so pertinent to the issues we've been discussing today that we're going to offer it again. And that is our friend Matthew Barrett's uh, book, None Greater, which is his introduction to, and, and I have to say, a pretty thorough introduction to the classical doctrine of God. And uh, if you don't want to embarrass yourself when Dr. Barna calls you and asks you to answer some questions, <laughs> uh, I, su- I suggest that you... Uh, you buy that book, read it, and annotate it richly as you work through it. In the meantime, it just uh, left me to thank you for joining us, and we look forward to being with you again next week. Angels and demons dancing in my head, lunatics and monsters underneath my bed. Media messiahs playing on my fears, pop culture prophets playing in my ears. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. To read more on hard-hitting topics like this, visit the podcast page and blog at mortificationofspin.org, where we'll have links and other articles from Amy, Carl, and Todd. And while you're there, please subscribe and consider making a donation. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. Whether you're preaching expositionally or doctrinally, it's not just an information dump. It's not just about knowing the right doctrines. And I think a lot of times it comes off that way, especially in the Reformed Church. We miss the rich relational element to it a lot of the time. You're going medieval mystic on us at this point, are you, Amy? Is that the, uh, yeah. <laughs> we, need to, we need to close to Hildegard of Bingen today. You get some weird stuff from Hildegard of Bingen. Now, you can either use the original Hildegard that's weird, or there's this German New Age group, Garmana, who do Hildegard stuff that's what? even weirder. Uh, it's pretty awful. That. I used to play in my medieval class. as a way of discouraging the <laughs> students from becoming medieval. <laughs> <laughs> Vänner och fränder i lade om råd Hur det skulle gifta bort sin fränka i år Ut i rosen lade om råd Hur det skulle gifta bort sin fränka i år Have you read the new Exegetical Preaching blog? Online now at exegeticalpreaching.com. Ideal for pastors, church leaders, anyone interested in biblical exegesis. Zondervan Bibles, in collaboration with Dr. Jonathan Pennington of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and his students, provides the content updated twice each month. Find examples of how to exegete a passage for a sermon or for your personal use. To sign up for the blog, visit exegeticalpreaching.com. Sponsored by the new Zondervan Comfort Print, NASB 95. Bible. Discover the difference.